Hey there, and welcome to The Refuge Podcast. We're a podcast at Crossroads Community Church in Nampa, Idaho. And here at the church, we believe in being a place of refuge, transformation, and partnership. My name is Charlie, and I'm a pastor here at the church. I'm Scott, and I'm one of the partners here at Crossroads. And we are continuing on today in a series called Staying Focused in a Jumbled World. Not staying jumbled in a focused world, (laughs) as I've said a couple times. And we're really looking at the Church of Corinth and what we can learn from from them today and the mistakes that they made and the in the criticisms that Paul has for them. And really interesting today, we're going to talk about kind of the type of speaker that they wanted and, and the kind of speaker that Paul really was. But really, we're talking about unity. And it's really interesting, you know, Scott, you and I were talking today just about how, unfortunately, disunity has kind of plagued the church, which is so interesting because unity was one of the things that was most important to Paul and most important to Christ. Yeah, disunity has so often been a part of the church. And there's one thing that uh, I believe with all of my heart, and, and I even express this to my Facebook friends who, whether they're Christian or not, and I, I say, you know what, truth is important. Yes, truth is important, obviously. But I think people are more important. Uh, you know, Jesus didn't die uh, to prove a point. Uh, he died for people. Uh, he didn't die for some abstraction. He died for people. And so, heaven forbid, we, we divide. And because the people we're dividing with, they're more important. That person's soul is more important than any abstract idea. Now, does that mean the truth isn't important? No, the truth is vitally important. Uh, but how much more are people no, it's true. I think, you know, I, I've heard it said, you know, what's the most important to God? It, it truly is. It's people. Amen. It's eternal things. And the only really eternal things that we get to encounter every day are people. You know, a lot of this world will pass away, but people, people won't. And so we get to hear today kind of how the people of Corinth maybe didn't handle things the best. And Paul has some harsh criticism for him. And so here's uh, Pastor Jim Halbert in our second week of staying focused in a jumbled world. We came here to see Jesus, right? I hope so. That's why I want to be here. I just want to see him. I mean, you're, you look good. I mean, I like seeing you, but I want to see him. I want to hear from him. Yeah. It was Paul who said it is through the foolishness of preaching that Jesus saves people. <laughs> I understand that. <laughs> I want to see him. I hope you do. I hope, I hope we see his face. It's good to have you here today to worship together, to open the word together. If you're listening online, thank you for joining us wherever you're listening. In fact, there's a little thing down in the bottom corner where you can tell us, give us a little note as to where you're listening from. We'd love to to hear that. That's uh, that's exciting for us to know where the the message is going out to. So thank you for joining us. We're going to be in our Bibles today in in the first letter of of Corinthians. by the way, I just want to say about Christopher Ewan, he's coming on uh, February 3rd, um, that weekend. Um, the timing is perfect as we're walking through this book, and these two books, actually the city of Corinth. Uh, I am going to say, though, to parents, some of you might think, well, I'm not sure I want my kids in there or my, you know, to, to, to be a part of that, and that is completely your choice if you would rather... Uh, take off that Sunday or whatever, but I would also challenge you to go and look at some of the YouTube stuff that he does so that you might think about this as a, as a, as a springboard into discussion with your kids on what does it mean to handle ourselves as believers in this world and how does that affect sexuality? So, uh, so we've been started this thing calling, called staying focused in a, in a jumbled world. We we want to know what it's like. We want to know how to do this Christian life, walk with Jesus, in a world that doesn't necessarily uh, embrace that. In fact, you might find that there are people who in your life um, support you but sort of keep a distance from you. Uh, some people who really agree with you in your faith 
And you might find uh, there are those who really actually go against you and criticize you. How do we, how do we navigate that? Um, the story of the city of Corinth is one of the best illustrations, I think, today of knowing how to do that. Uh, so we, we're going we're gonna to get to know this place, this place called Corinth, this beautiful location. And, and literally, it wasn't just a pretty day there. The, the, the ideal, it's an ideal setting. It's a beautiful port, and it's a center of, of, of worship and paganism, but it's worship and, and, and commerce. Ships would come in here, and, and the goods would be hauled up on into the, the country or across the isthmus into uh, other places. It, it's, it's a it's a place of, of opportunity. It's a place that Rome uh, had sacked about 144 BC and then eventually rebuilt so that they could give a place to live for former slaves and ex-military. So the people occupying the city were given this place to live and they had nothing to start with. The sky was the limit. They could, they could make a name for themselves. They could do anything they wanted now. And they were tr truly on, on an upward trajectory on the social uh, side of things and the financial side of things. In fact, in all the churches that Paul planted, Corinth was the wealthiest. It's also interesting to note that Corinth was the one church he had to talk to the most about giving. <laughs> but we're not talking about that today. We're going to look at the five main issues that... Paul deals with in the two letters to the church at Corinth. The first one is division in the church over favorite leaders. Paul's not saying you can't have preferences. We all have preferences. But he's saying when you let a preference become a dividing factor, something's wrong. You've lost focus on what you really need to be focusing on. The second thing is how do we live as Christians in a sexualized culture? How do we do that? How do we uh, uh, live for Christ in a glorifying way uh, the third one is freedom in Christ. And how do we use that freedom? Especially when it offends others. Um, what does it mean to be free in Christ? The, the fourth issue is worship that builds up rather than tears down. That's a, that's a major issue. And, and in just a moment, I'm going I'm to talk to you about a place called Delphi. So remember this. This is one of the five main issues that Corinth deals with. But when they came together, it was, it was chaos. And we'll better understand, I think, a little bit more today. And then finally is the necessity of the resurrection. The resurrection is not just some kind of a, a convenient doctrine that some believe and some don't. It is essential to our faith because Paul says our bodies, these bodies, are being redeemed. And therefore, uh, it's, it's essential not only for our salvation, it is, it, it is what Christ is doing in us now that is bringing us and preparing us for what he has for us in the future. So, so those five issues are, are what we're going to deal with. But today we want to focus in on the beginning of this issue of division in the church. Now, before I, I, I say that, there's, there's let's see, four, four things that I really want to talk about before we actually open the passage. The first is, is, is the value of Roman rhetoric. And you're thinking, oh no, that sounds really boring. Okay, I'm going to try my best to move through it fast. The second is the issues of pride and shame in the, the, the culture there. Thirdly, I want to talk about slavery and, and what did it mean for them to be slaves. We, we're going to see this word slavery and we know it was a town based on uh, um, former slaves. And finally, what does it Paul mean when he uses the word church, ecclesia? So the first thing is, is the value of Roman rhetoric. Va Roman rhetoric was a, was a, a method of actually the definition of rhetoric is the, is the art of persuasion, okay? Um, and so Paul was a master at, at Roman rhetoric in the writings of, uh, in his writings. So the epistles, he, Paul was a master in, in his, powerful in his writing in such a way that he, 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 he just did it so beautifully that, that people understood what he said. They, they, they were moved towards change and, and God was glorified in the end. It was, it was great. But Paul, and we're going to look later about what he really went through to become the apostle to the Gentiles, and it's, it's a wonder he's even standing, okay? When we look at the trauma and the possible uh, uh, physical um, maladies that might come from the, 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 the ways in which he was beat and left for dead at, at times, um, Paul was apparently not real impressive in person. 
and, and we'll, we'll explain that more as we get into this, but, but Roman rhetoric was, was what I would call so important to the people because they, were, they had nothing, and, and they were on this upward mobility uh, uh, trend, and, and they were impressed with people who had it all together. So, so in, in Corinthian culture, they were obsessed with, with the pagan philosophers of the day. Uh, there are pagan philosophers who have written things at the time of Paul in the place of Corinth who said when we arrived, they would barely let us get to our place of, of, of uh, where we were staying, and they would demand that we come and speak to them all day long, and we were so exhausted. People were, we want, we want wisdom, we want you to talk, and, and they, were, they were masters at, at, at eloquence, not necessarily substance. Having said that, what is it about us that when someone becomes famous because they're beautiful, all of a sudden we assume they're wise? What is that about human nature? That we are attracted to the beautifully symmetrical, the ones who can articulate eloquently, there's a word, um, it's sesquipedalian, it, it, have, anybody know what that word means? It, it means when a person uses big words when small words would suffice. <laughs> I just did that to you. Um, it, it's used to make you sound smart and, and often people will believe it even though they don't understand what was said. So what we need to understand is some of the pagan philosophers of the day were, were, were just waxing eloquently and they're saying all kinds of stuff. Even though the people didn't understand it, it sounded so smart we wanted to be a part of it. And you know, of course, nobody does that today. I mean, I, well, sometimes I use words to make myself sound more photosynthesis. Um, <laughs> We want to impress. And apparently, Corinthian culture was impressed. But Paul was not impressive. In fact, 35 miles from there is a place called Delphi. Delphi was this temple built on a, on a mountain. And in, in this temple were oracles. There were young women who, who gave themselves over to the gods, and they spoke on behalf of the gods. So if you would give them money and you would yell the loudest, they would take your money and give you a prophecy about your future. Now, this is a, a fact. It's a place. Um, in fact, I've been there. It, it's, it's a gorgeous setting. 35 miles from Corinth. You need to understand, this is where people would have gone to find out the information they wanted. But, but the information, we have historical records of the fact of some of the answers that they, they would get from the oracles. And the answers were, were, were given in such a way that if it happened this way or that way, they were still right. What I'm saying is about the equivalence of a fortune cookie, but a lot more expensive. So picture people standing around this little temple and the oracles who are just in like, literally they would just, they would babble. They were like, they were just like, taken up by the, you know, like the gods were speaking through them and people were yelling and shouting and, and, and throwing money and whoever gave the most would get a prophecy. By the way, they've uncovered the, art, the architecture or the, the, you know, the archaeology here and they discovered that in this temple there were cracks in the earth and methane was coming up through there. These chicks were high. <laughs> and they thought the gods were speaking. Can you picture the chaos? Babbling, people yelling, throwing money. Now, people in that culture getting saved, coming into church. We're going to talk about that. But we need to understand that. They were obsessed with knowledge, wisdom, even if it wasn't true. Because somehow... I'm on this upward mobility. Uh, ben Witherington said it well in his commentary. He said, these were social status climbers who wanted to associate with the intelligent and sophisticated. And frankly, they were embarrassed by the simple and down to earth. 
Many of Paul's problems in Corinth seem to have been caused by the wealthy and the social climbers among Corinthian Christians who were upset at him for not meeting their expectations for a great orator and teacher. Corinth was a city where an enterprising person could rise quickly in society through the accumulation and judicious use of newfound wealth. It seems that in Paul's time, many in Corinth were already suffering from a self-made person escapes humble origins syndrome. Corinth was a magnet for the socially ambitious since they were, there were many opportunities for merchants, bankers, and artisans to gain higher social status and accumulate a fortune in the city refounded by freed slaves. Do you have the picture? And in walks Paul, preaching about a God who's killed at the hands of man and who right before he's crucified does something only a slave would do. He washes the feet of his disciples. <laughs> that is not attractive for people who are impressed with power and eloquence and who are on their way up. Hmm. Pride and shame. That's what this is all about. Now, when I say the word slaves... Oftentimes, we have a Western mindset of that. Two things I want to say about slavery. First of all, when Rome sacked a city, they enslaved the people, which meant a lot of people from the top to the bottom. Some of the slaves, possibly living now in Corinth, were people who were stolen from another city who were already in power with great education. This was their opportunity to regain what they had once before. The second part is... Uh, what you would call indentured. In other words, a young person would say, I'm living in poverty. I don't see any way out of this poverty. My family's in poverty. Everybody around me's in poverty. If I sell myself to this powerful family, I will be able to live with them. I'll be able to learn from them. I'll be able to serve them. But in so doing, I'll also meet their circle of friends. Because in Roman law, when you do that, you are free at the age of 30. So you leave a much different person than you were when you came in. Yeah, you had to give your whole life to it. It's sort of like getting a college degree today. <laughs> All right? So when you think of slavery, get those two pictures in your mind. And finally, the word for church, ecclesia. It's a Greek word. We think the word church is a churchy word. Church is not a churchy word. Church was actually not a religious word at all. Jesus used the word church only two times. In Matthew 16, Matthew 18. Matthew 16, he said, I will build my church. Matthew 18, he says, when you're having struggles, here are the steps you take, but finally, if it doesn't work, tell it, tell it to the church. What is a church? In the Greek culture, a ecclesia was a gathering of the people who would put together the laws and rules for the city that that, that best uh, met the needs of the community as a whole. In its beautiful, perfect form, that's what an ecclesia is. There's a second meaning to ecclesia, though. It's when an ecclesia was called out. When the government had become so oppressive, they would call for an ecclesia, a gathering of the people, to determine what we're going to do to come out from under this oppressive government. I think Jesus used the word ecclesia in that sense. I, have, I will build my church and hell won't be able to stop it. In other words, you are not going, you're going to have to stand up against an oppressive religion to be my people. You are a holy militia. See? And I think Paul is using it in the classical sense of saying, we need to get together here, you guys, and talk about what really unifies us. Because the problem he addresses right here from the get-go is division. Here we go. Chapter 1, verse 10 of 1 Corinthians. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ to live in harmony with each other. Let there be no divisions in the church. Rather, be of one mind, united in thought and purpose. For some members of Close household have told me about your quarrels. My dear brothers and sisters, some of you are saying, I'm a follower of Paul. Others are saying, I'm a follow, uh, I follow Apollos. Others are saying, I follow Peter, or I follow only Christ. Has Christ been divided into factions? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? 
Were any of you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. I thank God I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, who were former synagogue leaders, for now no one can say they were baptized in my name. Oh yeah, okay, I I also baptized the house of Stephanus, but I don't remember baptizing anyone else, for Christ didn't send me to baptize. (laughs) That's interesting, isn't it? He didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the good news. That's, that's a fascinating statement right there. We're going to come back to it. And not with clever speech. What were they impressed by? Clever speech. For fear that the cross of Christ would lose its power. Wow. What Paul's saying is when competition reigns, unity is impossible. Jesus prayed for Unity. The prayer of Jesus right before he lays down his life willingly on the cross in John 17 is that we would be one as he and the Father are one so that the world would know that he was sent from God. The question is this, how are we doing with that? Unity. Harmony requires maturity and humility. Harmony requires Maturity and humility. Both of which seem to be lacking at Corinth. What Paul is saying is you can have your preferences, but don't let your preferences become differences. He talks about Paul. He talks about Apollos. He talks about Peter. He talks about Christ. None of these is he in competition with. Now, when we get into the second letter, Paul is going to talk about outside agitators who are calling into question his authority as an apostle. That's a separate thing. Here he's talking about people that he he works alongside of. Paul planted this church, but he sent Apollos and, 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 and Timothy and others to help disciple this young church. He's not in competition with Apollos. In fact, you can go to Acts chapter 18 and 19 and you'll find that, that he, uh, he, he's discipled Apollos and he, uh, Priscilla and Aquila uh, discipled Apollos. They, he was, though a very powerful man. Now, interestingly, he was from Alexandria and from all of the things that we have on Apollos, he was apparently very powerful in look and in speech. And we go to Acts 18 and 19, you're going to find a description there that he was very powerful and eloquent, able to convince Jews that Jesus was Messiah and pagans that Jesus was God. He was impressive. What was his culture? Impressed by rhetoric. Impressed by the art of persuasion. And apparently he did well. Then along comes Paul, who is Powerful in writing and yet not so powerful in speech or appearance. Hmm. The issue seems to be baptism here, though. Paul's talking about baptism. Why? Because apparently there's this argument going on in the church. Well, Paul baptized me. Well, Apollos baptized me. Well, Peter baptized me. I will only be baptized in Christ. And so they were beginning to let these things divide them. We like to put our leaders on pedestals. And unfortunately, some leaders like pedestals. I don't want to fall that far, so I'll climb off. I don't want to do that. Paul just kicked him away. And so did Apollos. By the way, when he was sent back to Corinth by Paul, he said, no, no, I'm not going to go. Why? He knew that he was part of the problem. He came in so powerfully, they were, they were taken up by him. And people begin to think, oh, he's the guy. Because they had lost sight of what really unifies. And what Paul just said was this, I did not come in powerful ways so that the cross would shine through. What Paul is saying is this. If we lose sight of the cross, 
If we lose sight of the fact that Jesus willingly laid down his life that we might live as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, if we do not receive that forgiveness, we will literally die in our condition. But by confession and and faith in him, we receive eternal life. If we lose sight of the cross and the resurrection, he didn't just stay dead, he was raised to life, which then therefore means that same power lives in us. And we too will be raised to be like him. If we lose sight of that, we'll have division. Because every little thing that comes up becomes bigger than it should be. And we divide over preferences. Baptism was the issue. The cult of personality was the issue. Do we follow man or do we follow Christ? Witherington went on to say about this issue of baptism, he says, I suspect the situation would have led Paul to ask the same sort of question of us that he asks the Corinthians. Was John Calvin or John Wesley or Martin Luther or Billy Graham crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of a prominent modern preacher? If you were baptized in a tiny church in the middle of Nebraska or you were baptized by a prominent preacher in the, in the, in the, in, in the Jordan River, both of them were an outward sign of it, something that has already happened inside. Notice this that Paul says, I came to preach, not baptize. Folks, he answers this doctrinal debate that happens today that people say, baptism is what saves you. No, that's not what Paul's, Paul is saying. You are saved through faith, and baptism is important, but that's what you do as an act of faith. I came to preach, not baptize. I baptized a few, but I didn't want you to lose sight of the cross. Don't lose sight of why we are here in the first place. We want to see Jesus. Not a man, not a woman, not a leader. Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered. But it's God who makes things grow. Be careful, leaders. Be careful, leaders, when you're asked, as a wise old preacher one time said to me, be careful, leaders, when you're asked, how did you do it? To not steal God's glory. And Paul says, I refuse to do that. And I don't really care if I'm unimpressive as long as you see the cross. And that's what brings unity. Verse 18, the message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction, but we who are being saved. Interesting, one of the the crew this morning pointed out, it's interesting, being saved. At first thought, you think, wait a minute, I thought I was saved. What does Paul mean we're being saved? Who's he talking to here? He's talking to a group of people who think they've arrived. And what he's saying to them is, uh, no, what he began, he will complete. We're in the process. We're in process here. And he's saying to the Corinthian people, you still have a lot to learn. In fact, more so than I thought you would have to at this point. We're being saved. That's, what he's talk, that's who he's talking to. So, so, so don't, if, if you're worried this morning, like, oh no, am I being, what if I, no, that's not what, thank you for pointing that out. It, it's, that's not what he's saying here. He's saying be careful of a pride that steps in and says, I've got this thing. I got it all figured out. I got my theology down pat. We're being saved. It's the power of God. As the scripture says, I'm gonna destroy the wisdom of the wise and disgrace the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this leave the philosophers, the scholars, the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. 
Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. Did you see that? Let me just read that one more time. Since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. I don't know. Did you catch that? Let me just say it one more time. God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. We know the heart of God because God reveals it to us because we want to know his heart not because we just want to know about God. See? He used our foolish preaching <laughs> to save those who believe. It's foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven. It's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This foolish plan of God is wiser than the wisest of human plans, and God's weakness is stronger than the greatest of human strength. Wow. Paul just put all of our efforts and pride in our own wisdom down here. And he put the beauty and the wisdom of the cross First and foremost, Jesus is not just an ancient religious leader that we can learn some things on how to live our lives better. He is the very savior of our souls and without him we will die. And that is what he meant when he said in his own words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. He meant it. God works on the human heart. The very fact that we're in Christ is because we've been drawn. The automatic question comes to mind, well, what about the people who don't believe? Well, the, you know what? God knows what he's doing. I'm here because he drew me. How about you? Continue to pray for those who don't know him. God loves them more than you do. And God in his infinite wisdom can take care of all that, but Jesus still said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm gonna have to trust him. But when I lose sight of that, I lose sight of the cross, and when I lose sight of the cross, I begin to divide over tiny little differences that become major chasms. The cross and the resurrection is the focus of the church. It's the cross that people battle, is what he's saying. The Jews, they don't like Jesus because they wanted the Messiah who would overthrow their oppressor, Rome. The Greeks can't stand the thought of a God who would actually be killed at the hands of a human. It's foolishness, nonsense. But when you understand it, it is pure wisdom. See, the foolish plan of God, as Paul calls it, is to remedy our sinful state that deserves death by Jesus taking our place in order to give us the abundant life of partnership with him now and eternal life with him forever. The cross is the way and the plan of God to remedy the human condition. By following Christ's example of humble service and love to others, division can be overcome. And the problem at Corinth was this. They didn't really want to follow a Messiah who became a servant when they were working really hard at leaving their slavery behind. Is Paul saying truly holy people are, are poor? That's not what he's saying. In fact, we have the Erastus stone. Erastus was a very powerful community leader who had a lot of money, who donated. There was a lot of people with finances that were a part of the, the ongoing healthy part of Corinth. Paul's not saying that. What he's saying is that when that is your obsession, when you are so focused on that that you've lost sight of the, of the cross, you've lost sight of it all. God uses people of every different spectrum, whether it's social status or, or financial status or education. It doesn't matter. He can use, the wisdom of God is foolishness to people. But have you ever noticed that when, when everybody is looking at this person thinking they're wise, this person over here that nobody ever sees 
Hep turns out to be the wisest person you know. You're thinking, how does that happen? That's God. Because they walk with Jesus. And the wisdom of God begins to leak from their lives. Oh, how so easily duped we can be into the persuasive, the beautiful, the powerful. And Paul comes in his humble estate and says, look to the cross. <sighs> hmm. The only way unity will ever happen is if the cross unites us. Even within the church, there are those who say the atonement is unnecessary. And Jesus made a mistake. A very painful mistake. The atonement is essential. And the resurrection enables us to live. Verse 26, remember, brothers and sisters, that few of you <coughs> were wise in the eyes or power, of the world, world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God chose things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they're wise. <coughs> that's, a, that's kind of a humbling little passage right there. About that time that I think I'm all that in a bag of chips, I come across that verse and go, oh, oops. Hmm. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. As a result, no one can ever boast in the presence of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. Therefore, the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast in the Lord. And I want to boast in the Lord today. It is him and him crucified and raised to life that saves us, purifies us, and gives us hope not just of eternal life, but abundant life now. I want to boast in him. He is the one, when we do that together, that brings unity. When we divide on that, when we, when we differ on that, we're going to have division. See, humility and humiliation are inevitably tied together. It's the same root word. If I'm going to be a person who is humble, there are going to be some moments of humiliation in my story where I had to be undone so that I might be redone. I don't like that. I would clearly vote against that if given the opportunity, but it is a fact. And Paul is saying, look at where you came from. Don't lose sight of that. Don't ever lose sight of that. And what God, what God has done in your life, don't ever lose sight of that. He did that. It's okay that you're doing well, but don't lose sight of the cross. Don't get, don't, don't, don't get off track and obsessed by the things that are really not important and the, the so-called wisdom of the world. It's not wise. Real wisdom is found in him. That's what he's saying. Don't be duped by the world's definition of success or power or wisdom. They don't understand God. They can't because they try to through reason. And God says, if you want to know my heart, I'll share it with you. But if you just want to know about me, mm, sorry. But we can know his heart. We've got to start at the foot of the cross if we're ever going to understand what it means to succeed. Success is being and doing what he's called us to be and do. 
The word, very word here for division is schisma in the Greek. It literally means to cause people to be angry at one another or to see each other as enemies. Has that happened today in our culture? People that I guarantee you, if you sat down and listened to one another, would differ on a few things, but have become enemies because we have let division cause us to hate one another. And folks, it's happening even in the body of Christ. And it's not somebody else's to fix. It's ours to fix. And it starts at the foot of the cross. We are nothing apart from Christ. Let's not be impressed by all the things the world says is impressive. We start there. And everything good and perfect is from his hands from there on out. That's what Paul's saying. How do we stay focused in a jumbled world? It's not easy. And as I read the letters to Corinth, there are times that I swallow hard because I realize I've been caught up in sometimes in the wrong things. You see, when competition reigns, unity is impossible. There's no competition when you and I come to the foot of the cross. Because that is where we find life. Not just eternal, but abundant now. And that's where it all begins. And the abundant life is what Paul wants for the church at Corinth so that it will actually impact the culture around it instead of letting the culture impact it. But you gotta believe this stuff. There's an old story about a little boy who's trying to sell apples on a corner. Came back after hours hadn't sold any apples, says, this is impossible. His friend said, let me try. So he takes the same box of apples, goes back, comes back an hour later, box is empty. Because what'd you do? He says, I stood there and called out, hey, apples for sale. He goes, it's the same thing I did. He says, yeah, but I picked one out and started eating it while I was saying it. And I let the juice run down my arm. Do you believe this stuff? Is the juice and the sweetness of walking with Christ running down your arm? Does the world get hungry when they see you? Paul says, you're here to impact the culture, not be impacted by the culture. Come back to the cross and begin again. thought uh as you as he dives into this you really get to see how appropriate it is that we're talking about this in our culture one of the things he says he really they wanted beautiful speakers to inspire them to do great things Mm. but here comes paul this unimpressive paul talking about a god who died as a servant and these people are like we're not interested makes me think of how our culture sometimes responds to christ we're not interested yeah, we want the best-looking person. We want the best-looking message. We want something to make us feel good. We really do. We want something to make us feel good. And anything that may inconvenience us. Um, and I, I'm speaking to myself as much as anybody. Uh, the tendency is, yeah, we want the, the most beautiful person. Uh, and the most elegant message. And 
if we can't get that, then we'll just pull it off and and put it to the side. Yeah. yeah. How no. true is that in our in our media saturated culture? Yeah. Where I mean, I think we may have struggle with that more today than back then. And I'm not saying it's the heart that's changed, but I think it's what we're uh, used to encountering on a daily basis. They didn't have um, MTV or, or you know, these Hollywood stars back then. They had their own things, but I still think that we may struggle with that more today just because of the different circumstances we're in. Hmm. No, I, I mean, I wonder. I think there's a lot of times where celebrities, a lot of times we go to them and we expect wisdom. And, and I think there are, just like in any group of people, there are, are probably celebrities that are very wise sure. and have, you know, gained success through being wonderful people. But there's also just regular people in that group. You know, it's it's like any group of people. You're going to meet some people at our church who are very wise and wonderful people. And, and I hate to say this, but you're going to meet some people at our church that maybe aren't the best people all the time. And that's who people are. That's 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 what we know of, of human beings is sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not. And but we, we think there's something special about celebrities. So I think, you know, Jim brought up People magazine, you know, and it's true. I mean, I think we really can see that we have an obsession still with the beautiful and the the successful and you know, we wanna be like them. We wanna learn from them. But it was really interesting. He uh he you see that Paul is not upset with Apollos. He's not he's not um, mad that Apollos has somehow, you know, taken all this attention and that he wants Apollos to back off. What he's mad is about these people putting him on a pedestal. And I thought that was an important point for Jim because, you know, I think Jim, we get to hear him every week, and I think he's a very good speaker. You know, I don't think that he's someone who, you know, needs to get worse at speaking or specifically try to stumble over his words in an effort to be like Paul. But at the same time, uh, he we don't need to put him on a pedestal. And I think Jim's pretty good about being honest and not trying to be this perfect person, but really uh, tries to be honest with us for that reason. Very refreshing words. Um, because we, we don't want to go to the opposite extreme and say that <clears throat> there's something, uh, I don't know, extraordinarily noteworthy uh, in, in stumbling on your words in and of itself. Uh, I mean, yes, there could be some um, some things which are exemplary about people who do, but we don't want to go to either extreme. We want to focus on Jesus, whether the person is beautiful, whether they're not, whether they stumble on their words, whether they don't, it doesn't matter. Yeah, And it could be so easy to go to one extreme or the other. I think the other thing is, I just think it's really interesting nowadays, there's kind of this thing of a celebrity pastor. You know, it, it would just just sounds like they shouldn't be able to go together, but they do. You know, and there are these pastors that are you know almost like rock stars, and it's kind of weird. And, and and I wonder what Paul would have to say about that, about these guys who kind of strut around and um, have their own you know things that don't, you know. And, and we don't know their heart. Maybe they really are trying to bring glory to God, and you know. But it sure seems like they're they're trying to bring glory to themselves. Yeah, and there's been churches with, when the pastor has retired that the church has kind of caved in because it wasn't built on Christ, it was built on that pastor. Or when the pastor has revealed um, they discover some sort of sin. Uh, and if you're not, if your rock is this man uh, and it's not on Jesus, <laughs> you're going to close in pretty fast. Um yeah. Once you realize how fallible that person really is. Yeah, Jim calls it that. It's that cult of personality, you know. Are we here for the the personality of the pastor? Are we here for the person of Jesus? And it was really interesting, you know, Jim brought up this idea that harmony requires humility and maturity, both of which are really lacking in Corinth. And Jim talked about how there's a he what he sees as a growing unity in churches. That more and more mm. churches are interested in becoming united and having unity. And, and I hope so. You know, I really think that's a cool thing we try to do is partner with churches in the area, in the, in the Treasure Valley. Just a while ago, we did a, a, a women's conference. You know, I think just this past week, we did a women's conference with Grace Bible. You know, and we love partnering with other churches, not in competition, but really helping each other. You know, Charlie, I definitely agree with that. I, I think I've also noticed a sense of partnership uh, among the body of Christ, which is 
beautiful. And I don't know, uh, um, but in my opinion, I think it may be because where the church is under attack to an extent in America like it hasn't been attacked in a very long time, if ever. And I don't know, I could be wrong here, but my personal opinion is it's, it's easier to be united when you all are under attack from a much bigger enemy when the attack is more real. And so, you know, if anything good can come out of uh, being in, uh, even further in the trenches than we possibly have been in a long time, uh, maybe it's helped us be more unified. I, I don't know. I'm just, just my gut feeling. No, I wonder. I, I think it's partly that. I think there's also just a desire to, to see some change and see churches, you know, impact. And I think the impact we can have is so much greater together that instead of trying to compete and trying to be, you know, uh, beat out other churches, it's a desire to instead work together to bless our community. So that's what I hope it is. But I hear you. There's probably some truth there. And I just think to me, it's exciting because to me, and it's hard being a pastor to not, you know, I used to be a youth pastor in Hawaii and, you know, our church, you know, we, we were next to this church that had a really cool youth group, you know, and, and, and part of me was like, man, I wish we had a cool youth group like that. You know, instead of just trying to partner, I was, you know, you can sometimes be intimidated and, and be uh, self-conscious and, and that, that really gets in the way of relationship because like we've said, harmony, it requires humility and it requires maturity. And if we're being immature, if we're being insecure, then it, it gets in the way of unity. But it, it's really cool. You know, Jim closed by really talking about this, that we need to choose a culture of Christ. And the uh, culture of Christ is that we follow a servant who loved people so much he was willing to die, who wasn't after fame and fortune, but who loves people. And that really shapes who we are and, and how we partner with churches. I can't say anything better than myself. That is so true. Um, amen to that. That's how I want my life to live is just after Jesus and to help foster the culture where Jesus is King, uh, not me. Um, it's just something we have to work at every day. Yeah. And something that we, I think we get to work together. So my hope is that more and more we see that, that churches are, uh, churches are partnering together that we want to bless our community that we want the treasure valley to know jesus and we're so excited to get chances to partner with churches and to do things to bless our community and to bring people to him so as you're listening to this podcast if you're looking for a church home uh, we would love to have you at crossroads but man there are some amazing churches so if you're living in uh, caldwell if you're living in you know twin falls if you're living all the way on the other side of the ocean and in hawaii if you're living on the other side of the country and in, on the East Coast, you know, find a great church, get invested, go in and be willing to serve and to, and to work towards unity even in that body. So thank you for listening today. We hope it was a blessing to you and we look forward to seeing you next week. <laughs>